0: There's a book called How to Read Literature Like a Professor, and my wife and I on a retreat listened to this as we were driving out to the Rocky Mountains, and it was a really interesting book, but the author contends that every story is about one thing, and that is a quest. And think about all the stories that we love. It seems to be that they're about a quest. Either a quest that is... uh, taken under by the protagonist or a group of protagonists, or it's a quest that is forced upon them that they take up reluctantly. But it does seem that so many of the stories that we love have a story about a quest in them, usually overcoming a great obstacle like evil, maybe the guy getting the girl at the end. But we long for that note at the end, where things seem to be set right, where they live happily ever after, as that line says. I believe that one of the reasons these stories resonate with us is that we long to see our own stories have a happy ending. We we love to see the tension in our own lives resolved, and we look at the world around us, and we just see how it could be so much better, and we long for someone to be able to come and to set things to right. And so I want to ask the question this morning, what if there really is a fairy tale ending to all of history? The scriptures speak about God coming to set this world to right. A broken creation, a fallen creation, a rebellious creation, and God calling Abraham and promising that through him and his family he would bring blessing to this world. And to see how that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, it's a magical story. And that hero, Jesus Christ, some people don't know, actually has, at the end of all of history, a marriage celebration with his bride, the church. And so we're going to look at a passage in the book of Revelation today that tells us about what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as we get ready to look at this, if you're new to Christianity, I want to invite you into this story to hear how John in Revelation gives us this vision of this eternal celebration that's taking place. And if you are a seasoned follower of Christ, I think you're going to be encouraged and reminded to sink your roots deep into this story and to heighten your anticipation of it. So what I want to do is just to read through this passage, and then we'll go back and just pick it apart verse by verse. This is how it begins. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the precious deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Amen. We're going to call our study today, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And so let's pray as we get ready to dive into this text and ask the Lord to teach us and to stir within us what he wants to do in us this day. Lord, thank you for this beautiful passage which speaks of the future to come when everything is set right by the Lord Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. For some of us, there's all kinds of questions that surround this. And I pray that you would be our teacher this day as we walk through this passage. Would you grant us the imagination to think what this must be like and the glory that is involved in it, how all of history is moving toward this point into the future. And so encourage us, we pray, Root us and ground us in the gospel of Jesus, and meet us, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is the last in our series on love, sexuality, and the body, and we've spent nine weeks, so this is the ninth week, going through what we are calling kind of a biblical theology of relationships, and we're thinking about how the gospel shapes and transforms our relationships. And if you missed any of these, I want to let you know they're all up online, and I'd encourage you to go back and and listen to those if you've missed some. But let's begin with verse six. Notice what you're supposed to hear as John paints this picture. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. As I was thinking about this, trying to imagine what it must be like, I'm I'm thinking about that moment when Texas A&M knocked off number one Alabama in our own stadium, and it was deafening. The noise was so great, and, he, and here the, the revelator talks about the voice of a great multitude. He's trying to stack metaphors on top of one another. The roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder. In other words, what he's saying is that what comes next is deafening. He's piling these metaphors on just to give us a sense of the volume coming out. And what is said is this. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. What amazing words. They start out with that word, hallelujah. We've used that in our songs already today. That song, hallelujah, is... Um, taken from the Hebrew language, which basically means praise YAH, and YAH being a shortened form of the word Yahweh, which is the name by which God made himself known to the nation of Israel. So praise Yahweh, hallelujah. And so they're singing hallelujah for several different reasons. The first one, they insist, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. We sang those beautiful words earlier in our service. They're certain here, and they're rejoicing in the absolute sovereignty of God and bringing history to this climax. And the next thing they say is, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. We hear this and we're thinking, that's really interesting because we don't think about lambs normally being married. And the people listening to this originally probably would have thought the sacrificial lamb, Going all the way back to the time of the Exodus when the lamb was sacrificed and the people were liberated from political slavery and and ushered towards the promised land by God. That sacrificial lamb was an image used by John the Baptist when he announced the presence of Jesus among them. He was out baptizing and it says the next day he that is John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when the book of Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's pointing us to the Lord Jesus. In fact, the book of Revelation calls Jesus the Lamb some 28 times. Over and over again, Jesus is described as the Lamb. And the very first example of this is in the book of Revelation chapter 5. And this is what John says as he sees this vision of the Lamb initially. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. So he has this vision of God, and he's holding this this sacred text. And it's a scroll. It is sealed with seven seals. And this scroll is the salvation of God, coming through judgment and the purification of this world. And it's sealed with seven seals. And he said, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So this vision of God holding the sacred scroll of his decrees sealed seven times over and this angel making the announcement, who is worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals? And John tells us no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Here John hears one of the elders speak to him and says to him, Look, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, one of the designations of the coming Messiah, the root of David, that promised king who would come and conquer, says, look at this lion. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see what's going on here? It's really interesting. (laughs) The elder says, look, behold the lion. And so John wipes the tears from his eyes, and he looks up. And instead of a lion, he sees a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. But the slaughtered lamb is standing, and he has conquered. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who who was seated on the throne. And he had taken the scroll. I'm sorry, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. The Lamb, the one who is worthy to open these decrees of God. And you see creation falling before him, saying to him, Worthy are you because you were slain and you redeem people from all over this world. So when we get to chapter 19 and we're told that the marriage of the Lamb has come, we've already been primed to know this is a high point of all history. Where it's all barreling towards Jesus Christ, this one who has conquered is becoming married, and it tells us here that his bride has made herself ready. And this is interesting. If you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus did not have a bride during the days of his uh, earthly pilgrimage. He did not take a, a woman to himself. He was a single man to the day that he died. And yet, we're told that Jesus, this lamb, takes to himself a bride If you were with us earlier in this series, you remember when we looked at the book of Ephesians, and there the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to husbands and wives on how to live together with one another and to treat one another, and then he quotes the book of Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the verse that is spoken of in Genesis chapter 2 when God brings Eve to Adam, And he says, this is what's going to happen. They're going to become one flesh. And then Paul makes a commentary on this verse. And he said, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And we say, well, wait a minute. I thought you were talking about Adam and Eve, that first couple that God established as kings and queens over his kingdom. And Paul would probably wink at us and says, well, I am speaking of that. But I'm speaking of something much deeper than that. The mystery is profound. The reason why God created marriage in the first place is to give us a picture of a husband and wife living together in harmony so that we can understand something of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Paul says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. John Piper, in his book, This Momentary Marriage, has some interesting commentary on this. He said, marriage, in its deepest meaning, is a copy Of Christ in the church. If you want to understand God's meaning for marriage, you have to grasp that we are dealing with a copy of an original, a metaphor of a greater reality, a parable, and a greater truth. The original, the reality, the truth refers to Christ's marriage to the church. And the copy, the metaphor, the parable refer to human marriage between a husband and a wife. Piper here commenting on that passage in Genesis says that when God created marriage originally for humanity to experience, to look at, he says that is the copy, that is the metaphor, and it's pointing to something God intended from the very beginning, and that is the reality of the marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. Utterly profound, utterly mysterious is the way Paul put it. Let me just make a a passing note here. When the scripture refers to to the church as the bride of Christ, it's speaking about a corporate reality. And I think it's sometimes it's hard for for men especially to think of themselves as the bride of Jesus. And let me just say, I think it's probably more accurate for us to say, I'm a part of the church of Jesus, who is the bride of Christ. I myself am a child of God. I'm an adopted son or I'm an adopted daughter, and I belong to the church. And the church, people from every nation and language and tribe, That is the bride of Christ. And by God's grace, I'm a part of that corporate identity. We're told in verse 7 that his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What's interesting is I, I'm not sure if John has this imagery in the back of his mind. I think he almost has to. He's writing in the first century in the Roman Empire. He's, he's been um, exiled to the island of Patmos where he is writing this. And in the Roman Empire, victors in competition were given white clothing to set them apart as, as the purebred, so to speak, the ones who conquered, the ones who achieved victory. And so I wonder if that has to be in the back of John's mind here. And maybe it is. But he's telling us the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And notice what this fine linen is. We're told it's the righteous deeds of the saints. The saints, of course, being just the standard term for followers of Jesus. This bride, on her wedding day, the church, is clothed in white. Which, interesting is why in many Christian marriages, traditionally, brides have worn white as a picture of this coming bride of Christ. We're told earlier in the book of Revelation, we actually use this for our call to worship, of this place where they're clothed in white robes. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. This is the bride looked at from another perspective. From every nation... From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here she is again, this multitude of people that no one can number, all clothed in white. And this whiteness, we're told from John, is their righteous deeds. Let's be clear. The Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. It's not good news about what we can do to earn our salvation, to make ourselves acceptable to God. Jesus lived and he died for us. And the gospel is a summons to believe in him, to trust in him for salvation. And when we do, we're given the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in his garments of salvation. And so that is a gift. But nevertheless, we're told that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this bride that we're seeing in the book of Revelation, the church of Jesus, is clothed in fine linen. We're told the fine linen is the righteous deeds. In a sense, she's beautified herself by the way that she is sought to follow Christ. And we're told that these are good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The angel comes to John in verse 9 and says to him, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What amazing words. Blessed are those who are invited to come to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Over and over again in the scriptures, this last day is, is cast as a feast, as a great celebration. And you can read in the prophets how they, they seem to strain to get this image across. For example, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, the prophet says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined you can imagine what that must be like. A feast set before people who've been redeemed. And he just stacks up imagery here. Rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined wine. This is, this is for celebration. This is for a party. This is for the eternal feast. Later on in the book of Isaiah, we're told this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. What imagery here from the prophet Isaiah as he describes this invitation to come, to come for salvation. And we're told to come and buy, but buy without money, without price, and just delight ourselves in the rich food of this feast. The last, very last chapter of the book of Revelation echoes something like this, and it says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Over and over again, the scriptures invite people like you and me, the best of us as well as the worst of us, to come and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls, for this day that will come, in which the marriage supper is had. We're told at the end of that verse 9 that these are the true words of God. It's a blessing to be invited to this. And the implication is that we take up that invitation and that we do come. And to emphasize it, the angel said, this saying about blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, these are the very true words of God. In other words, we can sink our teeth into it. We can take it to the bank and we should respond to it. I wonder how John was absorbing all of this. Can you imagine how glorious this must be to see all of history pointed to this eternal celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb? And in his overwhelmness, we're told in verse 10, then I fell at his feet to worship him. Then That is the angel. <laughs> and he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brother's who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Two times in the book of Revelation, John is so overwhelmed at this heavenly creature standing before him that he just falls down to worship it. What beauty this being must be. What glory awaits us in heaven, in the kingdom of God, to be surrounded by glorified humans and saints and these angels, that if we were to see them right now, we would be tempted to worship them. My friends, this is all refracted glory coming from God originally and how glorious God must be. Worship God. So let me summarize really our whole series for us like this. The reason God created love, sexuality, and the body is to point us to the greater reality, the eternal celebration of the marriage of the Lord Jesus and his bride, the church. This is what's coming This is why God gave us the picture to begin with of marriage. So a couple points of application. The first one is this. Let's accept this gracious invitation. I mean, if we're invited to come, if we're invited to come to this marriage supper, not because of our own merits, but because of the free grace of God lavished on us in Christ, then why wouldn't we accept that invitation? Why wouldn't we send in our RSVP by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ himself? How tragic it would be to arrive before the throne of God and to have not received this invitation. Interestingly, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about this coming feast in so many different ways. And in it, he gives us an idea of God's heart for people to come. Listen to what Jesus says. Actually, this is Luke telling us about what the context is of what Jesus says. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, that is to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has been teaching. They're sitting around a table feasting, and someone says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And no doubt, they will be blessed. We will be greatly blessed. But listen to how Jesus responds. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at this time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Excuse after excuse after excuse is given. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind in the lame." And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house May be filled. In the original context, Jesus was talking really about the rejection of his own people and wanting to have this celebration, this banquet. And so he says, Go out and invite whoever you can find because we want this house filled. And so the invitation comes to you and to me. No matter what we've done, no matter how we have failed. God or ourselves or other people, the invitation is to come and to receive this invitation and to not be found among those who received the invitation but never accepted it, never really wanted to go to it. We're told that basically we receive this invitation by believing in Jesus. You know these words from the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. We send in our RSVP, so to speak, by believing in Jesus, by placing our trust in him and seeking to follow him all the days of our life. So that's the first point of application. Let's receive that gracious invitation for ourselves. Here's the second one. Let's adorn the gospel with our lives. We're told that this bride, this collection of redeemed people who are the church, comes to this marriage supper of the Lamb adorned in fine white linen And these are the righteous deeds that they have performed. Remember, we're told that in Revelation 19. And so when I say let us adorn the gospel by our lives, we're not saying that we can make the gospel itself more beautiful, but we're simply called to respond to what God has done for us and what the Bible calls the obedience of faith and to seek to live as followers of Jesus in this world and to adorn our lives with good works. Listen to how Paul puts it in the book of Titus. He says that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Do you see what He said? He said, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to say yes to Christ likeness. And God has has redeemed us so that we can be zealous for good works. And the good news, my friends, is God sees each and every good deed that we do. No one else may ever see it. But Jesus tells us we can't even give a cup of cold water in his name to someone who needs it without getting a due reward for that. And so this gracious God longs to reward us for a life well lived. So let's receive that gracious invitation Let's adorn the gospel with our lives. And here's the final point of application. Let's heighten our anticipation of that eternal celebration. My friends, how often do you think about this day to come? This great marriage supper of the Lamb. This day which all of history is relentlessly moving towards. When God sets this world to right, evil is done away with, and the eternal celebration of Jesus with his redeemed people begin. Does that stir you? Does that occupy some of your thinking? Does that cause you to long for that day to come more and more? I've got to quote C.S. Lewis, because he says it like no, no one can. In his last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, he brings up all these tales of adventure, all these quests to a head. And Aslan says, The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. As they make their way into Aslan's country, this great lion king, he tells them that everything that has gone before is now over, the dream is ended, this is the morning. Here's the new day. And we're told by Lewis as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can say most truly that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that a beautiful description? Not just simply of the stories of Narnia and how they climax in this great eternal story, but also of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you see that, my friends? When that day comes... And we stand before Jesus, this one who has loved us and gave himself for us, who has put an end to all evil and suffering and death itself. That will begin the great story that none of us here can even begin to imagine what it will be like. And every moment will become or give way to the next moment, which is even more glorious. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor Minds has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And he's begun to reveal that for us in the gospel of Jesus. So my friends, eternal life, the gift that Christ gives to his bride, is the steadily increasing, always expanding, never-ending experience of joy where one moment of ecstasy breaks open to another even more breathtaking. And just when you think it cannot get any better... You are blown away with more wonder, love, and praise. Because, as Psalm 16 tells us, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. My friends, don't you long for that. It's going to be so, so amazing. And it's going to become to us this great gift, all because of grace. The Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people who long with great anticipation that eternal celebration known as the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And may everything within you respond. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.